listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. Just before I get into the message, I've had several people ask me about my family in Louisiana. I just wanted to give you a quick update. My uh, parents and a lot of my family have evacuated uh, to southern Arkansas, so my family is safe. My brother still is in New Orleans. He works for the Fox affiliate, so he's the news director there, and they're doing uh, around-the-clock coverage on uh, this storm. But anyway, several people have asked. I appreciate your thoughts and, and prayers for my uh, family, but they're, they're going to be safe. It's a matter of, you know, uh, their home and everything like that. So we'll, we'll see what, uh, what happens. But uh, anyhow, uh, things are good with them, and uh, I'm thankful and grateful for that. And, and so if my mind's a little bit distracted this morning, you'll know what, what I'm thinking about. But, uh, but anyhow, uh, my church that I came from, Northside, is on the other side of the state, so they're in good shape. But anyway, um, uh, I'm excited to preach today. I, I have a word that is very strong in my heart that I can't wait to give you. In two weeks begins our big series that I've been telling you about, that I've been promoting every single week. Um, we're starting a new series on the Beatitudes. We're going to be working through the Beatitudes one by one, these eight prophetic statements that we find at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And as you know, we're not going to stop with the Beatitudes. We plan to go right on through the Sermon on the Mount, verse by verse, passage by passage. And uh, so I'm excited. I don't know how wise it is of me to begin my tenure here preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, but because uh, you'll see, I mean, it is, it is a very, very uh, counterintuitive, radical message that uh, has turned the world upside down. And uh, so that's what we're going to be doing. And, and one of the things that we're going to begin doing with this series is we're going to begin closing every service, sharing communion together. I know that here at Village, communion has been kind of a monthly practice. In fact, at the church that I come to you from, we practice communion on a monthly basis. But I just have felt inspired to begin doing that. Uh, at, least, at least for this series, we're going to be sharing communion at the end of every service. And in fact, next weekend, uh, Pastor Wade is going to be preaching on the subject of communion. And I think it's going to be a very timely word. I think he was already even planning on preaching that before he knew I was going to uh, make this shift. And so uh, I'm excited about Pastor Wade's sermon, and we're going to actually begin this practice next week. Which means that this sermon this weekend, today, is my last sermon to preach before we get into the Beatitudes. And if you've been with us these past few weeks, uh, you know, we've been here for July and August. Every sermon, you know, it's not been just arbitrary. We've been really laying in some very important themes that I believe are going to serve us well as we get into the Sermon on the Mount. And you've heard me use certain terms over and over and over again. Probably you're starting to get sick of it. Um, but I've been using the term, for example, the Jesus way. We've been talking about the Jesus way. You've heard me talk over and over again about the, the kingdom of God and the nature of the kingdom. We've used the word becoming, and we've emphasized how our, our, our task is to become Christian, not just to become a Christian. That's easy, and that takes 20 seconds. But our lifelong expedition is to become Christian, to become Christ-like. 
And I think all of that's very important as we venture into the Sermon on the Mount. So these have not been disjointed sermons. They've all been overlapping and connected. And uh, this sermon today is going to be no exception. The title of my message this morning, as you can tell from the screen, Dark Nights and New Dawns. Dark Nights and New Dawns. Now I have a bit of a disclaimer at the beginning of this sermon. It's going to be the first sermon I've preached here that comes with a disclaimer. It will not be the last. <laughs> but here's the disclaimer. As I preach this sermon, I think there are going to be many of you that are either here or you're watching online or listening by podcast. I think there are many of you that are going to tune into this message and it's going to deeply resonate with you. And it's going to connect with your own life and your own experience, and, and you will immediately know what I'm talking about. It will make perfect sense to you, and this will be a very encouraging, affirming message to you in your life journey with Jesus. But I'm also aware that there's probably going to be some of you here today, and you're going to hear the sermon, and you're going to walk out of here thinking, what in the world was he trying to say? That didn't make any sense to me at all. And it may not even resonate with you in the least. And what I want to encourage you to do here, even before I begin the sermon, is I want you to, if, if you find yourself fitting in that category, the second category, just take the sermon, don't throw it away, but just put it on the shelf. Because what I can promise you is this, as you continue your journey with Jesus, and if, as you authentically follow Jesus, you will come upon seasons in your life where this sermon will make complete sense to you. And you will find what I'm going to say very encouraging and supportive. And it'll be, I think, a very pivotal message or, or just the themes that I'm going to be preaching on are very, very important for you to know going into those seasons. So just have some patience with me. Have a little grace and mercy uh, because I promise you, even if this message doesn't resonate with you now, hold on to it. It will later. Amen? Amen. All right. So let's, let's pray, and then we'll get into our text. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this wonderful moment that we have together, this holy, sacred moment. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we've gathered here to worship you. We've done that in song, we've done that in prayer, and now we're going to worship in our listening. Even myself, as I preach, I pray that I would be listening and sensitive to your spirit. So right now we just sweep aside as best we know how every other thought, every other agenda that could occupy our minds. And as an act of worship, we just set aside this time together and we invite you to speak to us into the very core of our beings. Speak to us. Encourage us. Where there needs to be correction, bring correction. But I pray that more than anything else that your spirit would be heard and received. Your voice would be received. That your word would take root in our hearts and sprout and bear fruit for your kingdom. May your agenda be established this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Genesis chapter 1, verse 5 is what we're going to open up with here today. Genesis chapter 1, verse 5. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. 
and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Biblically speaking, the new day does not begin in the morning when you wake up. The new day begins in the evening when the sun goes down. It was evening, and it was morning the first day. Take, for example, the Jewish Sabbath. If you ever have a chance to go to Israel, and by the way, I hope to take many of you to Israel with me very soon. I'm, I'm hoping to have a trip scheduled at some point, perhaps at the latter part of 2022. It just depends on what's going on in the world. But hopefully I'll have something to announce to you within two or three months. So if you've ever thought about going to Israel, be thinking and praying about it and perhaps even just setting some money aside because I promise you I, I want to take a team of you to Israel. It's going to be, I can't even overstate how, how important going to Israel has been for, it's it just enriched my faith. It's been incredible. It's affected the way I, I read the Bible. So I encourage you to do it if you can. But anyhow, when you go to Israel, one of the most unique experiences that you have is to be in Israel during the Sabbath. Whether you're in Jerusalem or whether you're in the area around the Sea of Galilee, most likely uh, the ancient city of Tiberias where most people stay when they're on a tour. And you're there and it's around Friday evening, the sun's starting to go down. And what you observe over a 20, 30 minute, 30 minute period is that the atmosphere just begins to change in the neighborhood. And it's, you can you just feel it just shift. People start coming out of their homes. People start playing music in their garages or in their carports. You start watching people dancing in their driveways. You hear the sound of children laughing and playing soccer in their front yards. You smell the aroma of meat on the grill. You can hear the local synagogue down the road booming with music and singing. It's like the whole community just comes alive in this span of 20, 30 minutes. The total atmosphere just changes in the neighborhood. Why? Because Sabbath has begun. But the Jewish Sabbath does not begin in the morning when people get out of bed on Saturday. Sabbath begins Friday evening when the sun goes down. Even Jews who aren't even particularly religious continue to observe this Sabbath rhythm. It's just such a part of who they are, their identities. And it's just interesting to me that this culture of people over the last 3,000 years have retained somehow this practice, this understanding that the new day does not begin in the morning when the sun comes up. The new day begins in the evening when the sun goes down. It was evening, then it was morning, the first day. And I think here's what God wants us to see in this. Each new day begins with new darkness. Each new day begins with new darkness. Now, this is not the way we typically think. This is counterintuitive. And I think that's why God had to give us this by revelation through Holy Scripture. But listen to me. The new day does not begin with being able to see the new day begins with being unable to see. Now, I'm talking to you this morning about spiritual progress. That's really what I'm working on right now. I'm talking to you about spiritual growth. 
And I think every person here this morning, you're here because at least to some degree, there's a part of you that wants to grow spiritually. I don't think there's anybody that would be here on a Sunday in the middle of the day when you could be doing a thousand other things. I don't think there's anybody who would be here if there wasn't at least part of you that wasn't interested in progressing and growing spiritually. But what you need to understand is that spiritual progress does not begin with the day of knowing. Spiritual progress begins with the night of unknowing. Now let me explain what I mean. Think with me about Abraham, the original patriarch, all the way at the beginning of the biblical story. And God calls Abraham to a unique vocation. In fact, I want to look at how the writer of Hebrews kind of sums up the call and the response of Abraham. Look at Hebrews 11, verse 8 on the screen. And the writer of Hebrews says this, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. Watch this. And he went out not knowing. Everybody say not knowing. He went out not knowing where he was going. So God calls Abraham, and Abraham, he doesn't go out knowing. He goes out not knowing. His whole journey of faith with God begins as a journey into the darkness of unknowing. Previous to this, Abraham has spent his entire life in the city of Ur. Ur is this ancient cosmopolitan city. It was a city of allure. It was a city of wealth and power and prestige. There was religion, there was politics, there's culture. There's a certain way that things are and everybody knows it. And so for Abraham and his family, Ur represents for him a place of comfort, a place of security, a place of identity. Everything that Abraham knows is found in the locale of Ur. And this mysterious God encounters Abraham and calls him and says, Abraham, I want you to leave. Leave Ur, leave your country, leave your people, leave your father's household, your inheritance. Abraham, I want you to leave everything that has given you comfort and security and identity. Leave everything that you know, and I want you to go. And Abraham's like, okay, go where? And God's like, somewhere. You'll eventually know. You'll eventually find out. You'll discover it somewhere along the way. But you'll never know until you go. And so Abraham leaves everything that he knows and he begins to travel west. Now here's the interesting thought. Did you know this? Abraham's journey from Ur of the Chaldees towards what he would eventually discover to be the land of Canaan, his journey west is the first westward journey in the Bible. Up until this point, every journey in the book of Genesis has been a journey east. They're always moving east, east, east. And it's always related to sinful activity. For example, Adam and Eve transgress in the Garden of Eden. And so they're expelled from the garden. Where? East of Eden. And then their son, Cain, slaughters his brother, Abel, and then eventually Cain goes forth to found the very first human city. Where? East of Eden, in the land of Nod. And then following the flood narrative, 
all of humanity gathers in mass and they begin moving eastward into the plains of Shinar where they're going to attempt to build the Tower of Babel. People are always moving east in the book of Genesis and it's always related to rebellion against God. But finally, when God calls Abraham or Abram, He calls Abraham, and Abraham responds by faith, and Abraham becomes the first person to move in a different direction. Everybody else has been moving eastward. Finally, somebody begins heading west. But listen to me. The journey west is a journey into the land of the setting sun, not the rising sun. The journey into something new from God is oftentimes a journey, first of all, into darkness. Now, this is not the way we tend to think. What we tend to think is, I always got to be moving towards the light, towards the light, towards the light. Sometimes we've got to be willing to go through darkness to reach the dawn of new light. Now, let me stop speaking in metaphor. Let me tell you clearly what I'm trying to say to you this morning. As you journey with Jesus, as you Walk the Jesus way, authentically, and you begin to pray things like this. You pray, God, I really want to know you more. I don't want to settle for half-hearted Christianity. I have one life, and I want to live it well, and I want to hear one day you say, well done. So, Lord, give me a clear vision of who Jesus is. Help me to see you more clearly through all of the veneer that we lacquer on top of you. Let me see an unvarnished picture of who you are. I want to see a vision of who you are and who you've called me to be and what you're doing in the world. I want to participate in what you're doing. Help me to see that clearly so that I can be as faithful as I can. Let me tell you, when you begin to pray that with sincerity, first of all, just know that that's a very dangerous prayer because it's going to mess a lot of things up for you. I'm just going to tell you straight out. It's going to mess some stuff up. But as you pray that with sincerity and authenticity, you will very well find yourself in places in your life, just like Abraham, where you're going to find yourself saying things like this. What's happening to me? Where am I going? God, where are you taking me? This doesn't make any sense. I used to have all this figured out. Now I'm not so sure anymore. Where's this thing going to land me? What's happening? And what I want you to understand is that nothing's wrong with you. This journey into the night of unknowing is absolutely essential to your spiritual progress. If you want to make real spiritual progress with Jesus, not pretend, but if you really want to grow in the Jesus way, this journey into the darkness of unknowing is unavoidable. Now, I keep using this word unknowing. What does this word unknowing mean? Well, it can be taken to mean a couple different things. First of all, unknowing can just simply mean not knowing, or it can mean unknowing. How many of you are following me? So, for example, Abraham's journey of faith was mostly a journey of not knowing. Abraham just simply doesn't know what's happening. I mean, he's like the first person in our heritage. 
you know, if you skip over Adam and Noah and a few others, I mean, Abraham's really the one where it just, it gets kicked off. That's why we call him Father Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons and many sons. So Abraham doesn't have Bible stories to go off of. You know what I'm saying? He doesn't have like memories of flannel graph figures. You know, people like Moses and David and Paul and all, they haven't even been born yet. Abraham's like the first one. He's the pioneer. And so Abraham just doesn't know. I mean, God's given him this vague sense of what's happening. But Abraham does not have the full-bodied understanding of God's mission in the world that you and I have hopefully acquired at this time in our lives and at this time in the, in the history of salvation. So he just simply doesn't know. Even on a practical level, Abraham doesn't even know where his family's going to settle. He doesn't even know where they're going to physically end up. So Abraham's journey of unknowing is mostly a journey of not knowing. But let's consider another very, very important person in the biblical story, the Apostle Paul, previously known as Saul of Tarsus. And you see, Saul's journey of unknowing is not really a journey of not knowing, because he knew plenty. Saul's journey is a journey of unknowing. And you see, unknowing is a whole lot more difficult than not knowing. It's not the learning that's hard. It's the unlearning. It's not hard to learn. Most people do not resist learning. Most people violently resist unlearning. That's the hard part. We want to think that in order to make spiritual progress, all we need is some positive addition. Okay, here I am. I want to grow as a Christian. I want to progress spiritually. So I need to add something new. I need to add some new insight, some new revelation. I need to read some new book or listen to some new podcast or hear some new preacher. I need to acquire some new revelation or I need some new experience, some new encounter in prayer, or maybe I need some new habits or some new disciplines. But we tend to think that in order to make spiritual progress, we always need to add something new. And we think that's the way it works. A lot of times, folks, that's not the way it works. Sometimes making spiritual progress is about negative subtraction. It's about taking something away. It's, it looks like this. Here, you've known this your entire life. Now you're going to have to unknow it. You're going to have to unlearn it because you've learned it all wrong. And you're going to have to unlearn it so that you can learn it the right way. Because what's happened is you've taken all of these puzzle pieces and you've, you've forced them all together and it doesn't, it's, it's not quite right. But before you can make progress, you've got to pull some of it apart. And you see, most people have a hard time with that. Most people, this makes them very uncomfortable. They resist it because it feels like you're going backwards. It's like, man, I've worked my entire life on this Bible prophecy stuff. And I got my charts all illustrated and colored and, and, and it's all ordered perfectly. I got my Bible charts. Look how impressive they are. And now you're telling me what? See, it's not the learning that's hard, it's the unlearning. For some people, it's just too much. It's not the knowing that's difficult, it's the unknowing. But remember, the negative comes first. It was evening, then it was morning, the first day. 
The night comes before the dawn of new light. So let's look at the Apostle Paul's story. Before he was the Apostle Paul, he's Saul of Tarsus, Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. I'm going to read it off the screen because in my notes I have it in a totally different version. I have no clue how I did that. So just follow along with me on the screen. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days, he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. So here's Saul of Tarsus, highly educated man, both with a Greek philosophical education and a sophisticated Hebrew education. He's trained at the feet of Gamaliel, the, the preeminent Jewish rabbi of his day. Saul is a sharp cookie. He knows his stuff. He's a member of the religious political party known as the Pharisees. The Pharisees were sort of like this first century take Israel back for God movement. And Saul was their rising star. He was their up and coming champion. He was highly skilled, well-trained in logic and rhetoric and debate. And he knew the scriptures like the back of his hand. He was sharp. And Saul absolutely knows something. He absolutely knows, he's positively certain that Jesus of Nazareth cannot be the Jewish Messiah. He knows it stronger than he knows everything else. Jesus of Nazareth cannot be the Jewish Messiah. He's certain of it because after all, the Bible says so. If you want a chapter and verse, Deuteronomy 21, verse 23, any man who hangs upon a tree is cursed by God. There you have it. As far as Paul's concerned, the Bible proves it unequivocally. It's, it's as clear in the black and white. Jesus of Nazareth cannot be the Jewish Messiah. He hung upon a tree, therefore he's cursed by God. You want to prove stuff with the Bible? I mean, you could prove almost anything with the Bible if you're clever enough. And Paul certainly is, Saul certainly is clever enough. And so as far as Saul of Tarsus is concerned, Saul would say, you know what, I'm just standing on biblical truth. I'm just taking a stand for truth. Those Christians over there, they can believe whatever they want. They're heretics. But as for me, I'm standing on the word. And the word clearly says that a man who hung, hangs upon a tree is cursed by God. Jesus hung upon a tree. He's cursed by God. Therefore, he cannot be the Jewish Messiah. The Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. And he's totally certain. In fact, he's so certain he becomes cruel 
Because certitude, whether religious or political or whatever, certitude always breeds cruelty. And no matter how right you are, when you become cruel, you're wrong. And Saul becomes the foremost persecutor of the church. And he has this practice of going and acquiring arrest warrants. He invades the synagogues. He interrogates people, finds out who the Christians are, arrests them, and brings them to Jerusalem for trial. That's what he does. And he sees it as God's work. He's taking a stand. And he hears about these Christians, 40 or 50 of them, who are hanging around some of the local synagogues in Damascus up in the north. And so Saul plans to do something about it. Somebody's got to do something. And so he acquires these arrest warrants from the high priest, and he, he plans to go and make his journey north into Damascus, where he's going to infiltrate these synagogues. He's going to grab people, interrogate them, interview them, find out who these heretics are who are claiming that a cursed man is the Jewish Messiah. Not only that, they're worshiping him as God. What could be more blasphemous? And so he's going to find these people and arrest them, bring them to Jerusalem, put them on trial for blasphemy, for which the penalty is death by stoning. And so breathing threats and murder, he begins his journey north to Damascus. Now understand something about Saul. Saul does not see himself as a cruel man. He does not see himself as a persecutor. Saul just loves the Bible. He's just taking a stand for biblical truth. And so armed with Deuteronomy 21-23, he's on his way to Damascus to put these heretics in their place. And somewhere along the way, a light that is shining brighter than the sun, he will later tell us, knocks Saul to the ground. And he hears a voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And the voice continues, now rise, get up on your feet, go into Damascus, somebody's going to come and tell you what to do. And Saul gets up on his feet, opens his eyes, and he can't see anything. All he sees is darkness. He's blind. He's groping around. You see, Saul sees a bright light, and he goes blind. It's not like Saul says, oh, wow, this beautiful, bright light, this incredible encounter with God. I can just add this now to my collection of Bible facts and experiences. No, Saul sees a bright light, and it thrusts him into darkness. Saul goes from the bright light of certitude into the darkness of unknowing. And what I want you to see is that for Saul of Tarsus, this is spiritual progress. But things are being dismantled. His, his theological system is falling apart. Things are breaking up. Things that Saul was once so sure of, all of a sudden now he's not so certain of. You see, before this, Saul of Tarsus was the Bible answer man. Saul knew the Bible. He knew the answers. He knew the system. He knew he was saved. Saul would say, if anybody's saved, I'm saved. He knew that he had good sound theology. 
and he knew he was right. He knew he was absolutely right. And then all of a sudden, something happens, and now Saul doesn't know anything. Except for one thing. Saul now knows that Jesus of Nazareth is risen from the dead. And that now he's going to have to rethink everything. He's going to have to rework it all. Now, the good news for Saul of Tarsus is that he doesn't have to get rid of everything that he knows. In fact, he can hold on to most of it, but he's going to have to reframe it. He's going to have to rethink it, including this verse in Deuteronomy 21, verse 23. Any man who hangs upon a curse or hangs upon a tree is cursed by God. Saul doesn't have to get rid of that verse. I mean, it's part of God's holy scriptures. You've got to do something with it. You can't just throw it in the garbage can. But he knows, I'm going to have to rethink this thing. I'm going to have to rework it. And that's exactly what he does years and years later when he writes his letter to the Galatian church. And what he shows is that what's happening on the cross is Jesus is absorbing the curse of the law so that the blessings of God can come down, not just on the Jews, but the entire world. And so the whole ironic thing of it is that this same verse that Saul of Tarsus once used to justify trying to destroy Christianity, now Paul the Apostle is using to put on display the beauty of Christianity. But he's had to rethink all of this. He's got to rework it all. It's going to take him some time. But I just think it's interesting that one moment, here you have this man, he's got his Bible tucked under his arm, and he's got this confident stride to Damascus. I'm going to go put those heretics in their place, Deuteronomy 21, 23. And then all of a sudden, he encounters Jesus. And here's how Saul's spiritual journey begins. Somebody please take me by the hand, because I can't see a thing. I don't even know where I'm going anymore. Sometimes spiritual progress looks like this. Sometimes spiritual progress is found in those times in your life where you're like, what's happening? I thought I, I thought I was sure about all of this stuff. And now I, I, I realize I don't even have it all figured out anymore. Somebody please help me. Somebody please point me in the right direction. What am I supposed to believe? Is this even right? God help me. You might even feel like you're backsliding. I assure you that you are not. This has been my own journey. I'm speaking to, this is a biographical sermon. This has been my journey and I believe it's the journey of anyone who wants to make real progress in the Jesus way. And just like Saul of Tarsus, I needed a few people to take me by the hand. I needed Dallas Willard to teach me what it looks like to follow Jesus. That the goal of Christianity is not to sit around with my ticket to heaven and wait until I die, but that God has a mission right here and right now in the world that I'm invited to participate in. I needed, I needed a woman named Fleming Rutledge to help me recover a rich, beautiful theology of the cross rather than this cheap formula that I had been handed at one point in my life. I needed Eugene Peterson to take me by the hand and lead me out of church growth philosophy and actually show me what a pastor's supposed to be and what a church is for. 
I needed some of these folks to take me by the hand and lead me into a better way. Because when you're blind and you know you're blind, you got to trust somebody. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. This journey, my own journey through the darkness of unknowing, has cost me dearly. It's cost me my certitude. It's cost me some pain. It's cost me some friends who should have known better. It's cost me a whole lot of other things. And it's going to cost you some things as well. There's no way of following Jesus, a crucified man, that's not going to lead to you somehow, some way, taking up your cross. And you're going to experience betrayal. You're going to experience heartache. You're going to experience people who align your, uh, align, uh, what am I saying, malign your character and misinterpret your motives and misrepresent you. You're going to experience that. There's no way of following Jesus that doesn't lead you into some degree of trouble and persecution. But I can promise you this. It is totally worth it. I've gone through the darkness of unknowing. I will go through it again, I'm sure. But I've also experienced the dawn of new light. <laughs> and I stand here today. I've, I've been following Jesus now for a long time. And I've been a pastor now for, I guess, going on nine years. I've been in full-time ministry now for 17 years. I have never been more fascinated with Jesus than I am right now. I am so captured by Jesus' vision and his, his kingdom agenda. And there's nothing else I want to give my life to. That's why the Post family left everything we knew. We left our friends. We left our family. We left our church. I left my denomination. I left everything I knew, and we have made the literal journey west. <laughs> and we've landed here. Now, I'm not saying that your journey with Jesus is going to make you move west because at some point you're going to end up in the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> but I am saying that to authentically follow Jesus, it's all about, it's, it's a journey of dark nights and new dawns. You can't just take your life right now as it is and just spray it with hairspray and expect it to just be fixed for the rest of your life. There are things going to get messed up in your life. There are people who are going to let go of you but you're also going to acquire new light that's going to illuminate your life and fill you with fresh vision that you will be enraptured by and mesmerized by, and you will reach a place where you're like, I'm willing to give up whatever I have to give up to follow this man, and there's no greater cause. Now listen to me. If you're sitting here today, or if you're watching this online or listening to this by podcast, you're hearing me preach, and none of this is making sense to you, and you've been a Christian for like years, you're probably a little bit stuck. And you probably ought to start praying some more dangerous prayers. Maybe you ought to start praying like this, God, I'm, I'm afraid I might be a little bit stuck right now. But I sure do want to know you. I do not want to waste my life. I want to follow you faithfully even if it means maybe you've got to shake some things up. And even if it means I've got to unlearn some stuff. 
And even if it means I've got to pay a price, I just want to be faithful to Jesus. I would start praying like that. Now let me close with this. I'm going to ask Daniel to just come and play on the piano. The band will come up a little later. The choir, you guys will come up later. I just want Daniel to come and play. Just play something really pretty and emotional, Daniel. <laughs> Uh, about a year ago, I had a friend of mine recommend a book to me, and before I tell you the title of the book, and before you start writing it down to check it out of the library, let me just tell you I wouldn't recommend it to you. I didn't enjoy it, but uh, it's a book called Lilith by George MacDonald. George MacDonald was one of the mentors of C.S. Lewis, and, uh, and he wrote this book called Lilith. It's a fantasy novel, sort of along the lines of J.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, Chronicles of Narnia, Lord of the Rings. It's kind of one of these adventurous fantasy novels. It's not really my thing. But there's this interesting scene in this book that I want to just close with. The main character is a guy named Mr. Vane. And early in the novel, Mr. Vane gets approached by another character named Mr. Raven. And he's actually a raven. And Mr. Raven approaches Mr. Vane to invite him on a journey. And it's going to be quite a journey. Like, Mr. Vane has no clue what's going to happen. But Mr. Raven says to Mr. Vane, he says, come along now. It's time to go. Come with me. And Mr. Vane says, I'm quite content where I am. Thank you very much. And Mr. Raven replies, you think you are, but you're not. Come along with me. And I think perhaps this morning for some of you, maybe for somebody specific here, I'm going to be your Mr. Raven today. We're about to go on a journey together through the most important sermon ever preached where Jesus is laying out his vision for human life and society under his reign. And I think this journey, for some of you perhaps, I don't know how, but it's going to shake some things up for you. And you may be prompted by the Holy Spirit and realize I, there's a couple things I might need to unlearn. There's some stuff I need to unknow. It's going to shake some stuff up for you. And right now, maybe you're in that spiritual mind frame of saying to me in reply, Ryan, I'm quite content where I am. With my current way of looking at the world, with my current understanding of Jesus, with my current state and condition of my spiritual path, I'm quite content where I am. Thank you very much. Don't shake anything up for me. And what I'm going to say to you, perhaps prophetically today, is this. You think you are, but you are not because you don't even know what it is you don't know yet. My prayer for every person in this church is that each one of us, no matter how long we've been in this thing, that we would acquire once again a fresh, beautiful vision of who Jesus is, the radical Jesus, the revolutionary Jesus, who they were so threatened by they had to put him on a cross. I pray that every one of us would be captured 
by a whole fresh vision of Jesus and his ideas and the way of life that he's calling us to live. Because I, I think if we can just see that for what it is, if we can see the beauty and the glory of the message of the kingdom of God, there's not a person here who wouldn't want to just completely abandon ourselves at any cost. And it's going to cost you something. It's going to have to, you're going to have to let go of some stuff. You might have to let go of some people. Or better, or, or more accurate, there may be some people who are going to let go of you. And there may be some ideas and some perspectives that you're going to have to let go of along the way. But remember, it was evening. It was morning the first day. It begins at sundown, not at sunset. And we've got to be willing to go through the night of unknowing to reach the dawn of new truth. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.